Turn with me to Acts, Acts chapter 22. We've had a number of special services over the last few weeks, so we haven't been in Acts for a while, so I will catch us up and uh, kind of refresh us on where we have been as we kind of move forward. Um, but we're kind of nearing the end of, of Acts at this point. As I said, this book covers roughly 30 years of early church history from the, the ascension of Christ into heaven and then the, the Holy Spirit descended and fell upon the Christians and the church was born and then the apostles went out in the power of the Spirit and began to plant churches. So this is obviously not an exhaustive history of everything that happened in those 30 years but these are the major events. This helps us to understand how the gospel made its way around the world so early there in the first century um, and it's such a beautiful book. We, there, we would be lacking so much if we didn't have the book of Acts. I'm so grateful for this this wonderful book. And as I said, we're getting towards the end of it, so we're about 20 to 25 years into the book of Acts at this point. You wouldn't know that uh, as you're just reading through the book. It's it's um, easy to forget that so much time is actually passing in between these different events. And so let me pray for us. We'll do a little bit of an introduction here, and then we'll get into the text. God, we love you. And we thank you for your word. We want to be uh, the people, a people of this book. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you have uh, revealed to us how we can live in a way that is pleasing to you, that we can walk worthy, Lord, of the calling with which we've been called. And so I pray that you would be glorified today as we consider your words, as we read together, and as I as I share, Lord, what you have put upon my heart, I pray, O oh Father, that you would receive glory. And I pray that you would bless your people here today. And I pray that you would reward uh, their faithfulness for coming to sit at your feet and to hear your word. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a greater way. I pray that you would encourage, that you would challenge, that you would convict, that you would strengthen. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. So I titled this message, God Meant It for Good. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this really carries the idea that God is in control. And no matter what might happen in our lives, good or bad, God is able to use it. Now that is one of the most glorious realities for the, the Christian. And I'm, I'll never forget when I first heard this, this truth that God is able to work things together for good, all things together for good. I hadn't been a Christian for very long at all, but God had done some amazing works in my life, and He was changing me, and I was excited. And one thing I knew was I wasn't the guy that I used to be. One thing was for sure, I was changing, and it was so very exciting. But then, sure enough, as you might expect, there came the day when something happened and I just totally lost it, man. I had a, you know, I had a real temper back in the day. And um, I was shocked to realize that it was still down in there, deep down in there. And somebody brought it out. You know, some people are just specially gifted in that way. They can do that. They can bring that out in you. And so it happened and I really lost my cool. And, um, man, I felt awful, you know, the next couple of days, and I was talking with a pastor, and I was expressing my remorse, and I said, but the reality is the Lord has kind of helped me to see that that's still 
there and it's, it's ugly. And he said, well, you know, Rob, God does work all things together for good. So even in that situation, God revealed something to me. It's something that ultimately God wanted to work out of me. And so often that's how he does it. You know, he'll put people in your lives that stir that kind of stuff up, bring it to the top, and then he'll, he'll prune you, right? And so I thought, wow, you know, God is able to even take my failures. God is able to take uh, my, my struggles and, and do something good with it ultimately, to bring his, his will about in my life and to, to change me. And that was awesome to me. But you know, unfortunately, a lot of times now, as, a, as I have gone on in my walk, that, that whole idea, Romans 8:28, we tend to look at that as if it were a cliche, don't we? Like, that's something that belongs on a coffee mug, but don't tell me that. Don't tell me that when I'm going through a hard time, because that's what you often hear. Someone has some sort of tragedy in their life, and then someone comes up and says, well, you know, God works all things together for good. And oftentimes people will even get offended by that. And so <clears throat> that, that should not be ultimately. That is one of the most glorious truths for the Christians I have already said, and I try to come back to that every so often and think about the fact that God is indeed working a work in my life, and regardless of any outward opposition, God is able... He is in control, and regardless of my own failures and shortcomings, God is still able. He is in control. And so that's really the idea of the text that we're looking at today. And I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Many of us probably know the story of Joseph. He was one of the the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And the rest of the brothers, they didn't like Joseph. They were jealous. And so ultimately, what did they do? They actually sold him off into slavery one day and then told their dad that, well, they found his, his shirt and it was covered in blood. They had done that and uh, put animal blood on it and convinced the, the dad that his son had been killed. All right, well, all, many, many years later, Joseph actually was set free from slavery and rose to prominence in Egypt. He was the second highest in command in Egypt. And then he, he sees his brothers again, and now they're scared of him because they know that they're in big trouble. Generally speaking, they would be. But Joseph said, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used it for good. So even, even their wickedness, even their conspiring against him, all the difficulties that Joseph himself went through from that point moving forward, God did a an amazing work when it was all said and done and God was able to take what was meant for evil and use it for good. And where else do we see that uh, than the cross? I mean, when we look at the cross of Jesus and we consider the wickedness of men and the, the murderous plots of men that hated Jesus, we think about no doubt the enemy was all in that. Satan was doing his best to try to stop the plan of God, but what men meant for evil, God used for good. I mean, that's the cross all day long. And so ultimately, something that was so horrific, something that was so tragic, worked for our salvation. And that is, that is our God. God cannot be stopped. He's amazing. He is in control. He is not subject to, to our you know, he's not subject to our weakness or our failures or our doubts or, or any of that. And so that's what we're going to see today.
Acts chapter 22, verse 30 is where we pick up, and then we're going to work our way uh, through chapter 23. So if you'll look at that verse, 22:30, it says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so we're told this is the next day. So what happened the previous day? It was so many weeks ago, we probably can't even remember at this point. But Paul had gone to Jerusalem. He concluded his third missionary journey, and he was at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews there recognized him, the Jews from Ephesus. Uh, And there was this huge uproar there in the Temple Mount. And so the commander and uh, some of the other soldiers came down, and they basically rescued Paul because of the the threat of violence coming from the Jews there in the temple. And so Paul had asked for permission to speak to the Jews. You'll recall he spoke in Greek to the commander, and he was kind of shocked by that. And he said, can you speak in Greek? And he said, yes. And so he led him, and, and so he spoke Hebrew to the Jews. And it was going really well for a second, and then Paul said the wrong thing. And he said, ultimately, God had sent him to the Gentiles, and then there was another outburst. So then they took him... Uh, to back to the uh, to the fort overnight, and now the following day, we see that the commander still didn't know what was going on. He was still very confused about why the uproar, why were they trying to kill Paul. So he takes them back out, and basically court is set again, and uh, the commander assembled all the peoples together to address the matter and figure out what was going on. So, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. All right, so Paul is brought back out before the, the Sanhedrin. This is the, uh, the Supreme Court of the Jews here. And uh, he begins to speak, and he says, Brothers, I've, been in, I've had all good conscience before God up to this very day. Well, the high priest was very offended at that. And so he encouraged someone who was standing by to, he didn't encourage, he commanded them to to smack Paul. And so Paul lashes out and says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now that's, I don't know the last time I called somebody a whitewashed wall. That's not, you know, that's like, ooh, wow, man, I can't believe he did that. You know, I would have just said something about his mama, but he really took it to the next step, you know. Uh, and basically, that was the same kind of language that Jesus used. Um, and he was talking about a grave. So oftentimes when Jerusalem was having feasts and they were bursting at the seams with pilgrims and visitors coming in, they would go through and do everything to really clean the place up and make it look good. And oftentimes the graves, the gravestones, they would really clean up around and then paint them white. And just fixing up the area. But inside it was still a bunch of dead men's bones. And so that's what Jesus was basically saying. You look real good on the outside. You say the right things. You do the right things. But inwardly, you're dead. Inwardly, just a corpse. 
And so Paul is taking up that same exact verbiage here against the high priest. I mean, that's pretty vicious. And then the, the people standing by said, how dare you basically talk like that to the high priest? And then Paul backtracks and says, oh, I didn't realize that it was the high priest. Now there's some different uh, ideas as to what's going on here. One, they say so much time has passed that it's very likely that Paul doesn't recognize the guy anymore uh, as the high priest. Uh, it's also very possible that um, this is a, a reference to the fact that Paul had very poor eyesight. He was uh, seemingly almost blind sometimes, uh, and I won't get into that, but there are a number of references throughout the scriptures that kind of indicate that. So he's standing there, but he can't actually see who he's talking to. And then some people have said it's sarcasm, that basically what he's saying is, is I didn't realize that someone in that position would actually talk like that. And so that it was another backhanded slap, so to speak. But Paul ultimately apologizes and says, you know, the, the scriptures say that I ought not to, to do that. He's quoting Exodus 22.8. And so one of the things that was significant to me, this is very similar to what happened to Jesus. The night before Jesus was crucified and he was on trial, you remember that he was also smacked. Uh, One of the soldiers was commanded to to strike Jesus. And what was his response to that? He didn't lash out. He just simply said, If I have done evil, then bear witness of the evil. But if I haven't, King James Version here, Why smitest thou me? And uh, I love that. Why smitest thou me? But that was his response. But Paul, totally different. So Jesus and Paul in the same exact situation, the same thing happens, two totally different responses here. So I don't want to say, I mean, Paul by his own admission was wrong. And so he certainly didn't respond like Christ responded in that same situation. And so what I would say here, this is an example where Paul got it wrong. Paul... Fleshed out, that's kind of a Christianese word there. Paul, Paul, you know, he, he lost control of himself there for a moment and said something he should not have said. But God still uses it. God is still moving Paul forward. God is moving Paul right to where he would have Paul be, despite the opposition that Paul is coming up against and despite Paul's own seemingly hot temper in this moment. I'm sure that a lot of us in this room can relate with that, the, the temper. That's a terrible thing, is it not? And, uh, and so you lose it in a moment, and then as soon as it's over, comes the, the guilt, the condemnation. You blew it, you know. And, um, you know, even though Paul had that moment, God was still going to use it. All right. Well, Paul's getting ready to throw this whole thing into disarray. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. 
Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So Paul probably recognized this is not good. He just got smacked in the face. That was very unlawful. He's not going to get a fair hearing here. So he, he had to think quick. And he capitalized on something. He recognized that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both present in the room. And they have some very deep differences between them. And you often hear those, those two groups mentioned, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think a lot of times we don't even know who they are or what the difference is. Just really quick, the Pharisees were kind of the back-to-the-Bible people in, in the beginning when this whole group even started. They saw a lot that was going on in the community, and the government. They were sick of it, so they said, we're going to get back. They were the blue-collar people. They really had the favor of the people. They were very conservative, and they were the fundamentalists, if you will. So they believed the, the Word. They believed the, the five books of the law and the rest of, of the Old Testament Scriptures as we understand it, the, the, the prophets, the kings, all, all of that. And they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. But the Sadducees were very different. The Sadducees were very aristocratic. They were very wealthy. They were very involved in politics. They had control of the temple precinct at that point. They were very closely linked with the priestly line. And they were very liberal. They didn't believe, they only held to the first five books of the law. They didn't believe in the traditions that were handed down by the rabbis. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, the afterlife, any of that whatsoever. And so Paul capitalized on this division. And Paul said, look, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and it's because of the resurrection that I am being put on trial here today, which was partially true, because it was the resurrection of, of Jesus ultimately and so they stepped right into Paul's trap. And the Pharisees actually took up Paul's defense here because he basically turned it around and turned the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other. So then there was another violent outburst and the commander had hoped that he would be able to, to set this thing in place and find out what was really going on, but it just went bad again. And this time he was afraid they were going to literally tear Paul into pieces. And so the soldiers rushed back in and they took Paul out again. And so, now, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You know, perhaps Paul thought he really failed. Man, I really blew it, you know. And it was his dream to see the Jews come to Christ. And he had an opportunity of a lifetime to stand right there on the Temple Mount and preach the Gospel. And it went horribly wrong. And then he had a second chance. And he went before the Sanhedrin, the high court. And then he lost his cool and he went off on the, on the high priest. And then another outburst. And now he's back in jail. And you could probably think that he's carrying a lot of guilt and blame here. Like, man, I messed up. I had such an opportunity. And look what happened. But then look what the Lord does. Verse 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. The Lord stood by him. 
That's very significant to me. When I, when I read that, I don't hear the Lord stood over him. I don't hear that the Lord was pointing His finger at him and saying, look at what you did. The Lord stood by him. That is very significant to me. That's our Lord. You know, sometimes we're real good at heaping condemnation on ourselves. I don't know about you, but I can certainly be in that place. And the Lord doesn't heap condemnation on us. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? The Lord will convict us oftentimes when we're somewhere we ought not be. But that is always for the purpose of drawing us closer, drawing us back. Condemnation would oftentimes cause us to hide our face from the Lord or to try to try to run away from God even. And so you know that's not from the Lord. So here the Lord stood by Paul. This is the fifth of six visions that Paul had of the Lord. And he stood by him and he, he really encouraged him. And he said, be of good cheer. That's a strange, that's a strange uh, phrase, I, I think, honestly. Um, I wouldn't think that the Lord would say, hey, cheer up. Just as you have done in Jerusalem, now you've got to go do it in Rome. Not really what, what that, that word means. You'll notice in your notes there is tharseo. It means to be emboldened or to show courage. It refers to God bolstering the believer, empowering them with a bold inner attitude. Uh, for the believer, it's the result of the Lord infusing his strength by his inworking of faith. Showing this unflinching, bold courage means living out the inner confidence that is spirit produced. So God was encouraging Paul, the Lord was encouraging Paul in himself. And he said, take heart, Paul. Have courage. Be strengthened. As you have served me, as you have been a witness for me in Jerusalem, now you're going to go and you're going to do the same in Rome. And that's just it, guys. It's not by my power, not by my might, but by what? By His Spirit, says the Lord. And so any, anything that Paul did, any, any, anything that he did good for the Lord, it was all by God's Spirit grace. It was all by God's Spirit. And the same is true for us. And so whatever kind of situation you might be facing right now, whatever kind of difficulty might be set before you, the Lord would say, be of good cheer. The Lord would say, have courage. Be strengthened. Because it's not by your power. It's not by your might. It's not by your cleverness. It's not by your resources. It's by my Spirit, says the Lord. And so... Jesus stood by Paul and encouraged him, comforted him, reminded him of, of who his strength was, where his strength came from. And he affirmed him. He said, look, you did what you did in Jerusalem. I want you to do the same thing in Rome. You remember there were people who didn't think Paul should go to Jerusalem. You remember that a couple months ago? I think it was roughly we talked about that. People were trying to dissuade Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do that. But Paul did it anyways. And some people, some commentators have even said that Paul was out of God's will. But here Jesus said, you did a good thing. What you did for me in Jerusalem, I want you to go and do the same thing in Rome. And so Jesus affirmed Paul's future. He let him know, you're going to have another chance, an even greater chance. Now Paul's going to be in front of the Jews again, but he's also going to be in front of the Roman officials. And so I'm so encouraged by that. God gives us multiple chances. 
I would say second chances, but I feel like I'm on my you know, millionth chance in life. You know what I mean? But God gives us multiple chances. And I'm so grateful for that. I was just thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about something recently that happened. It's really been bothering me. And I thought, man, I had an opportunity to do this thing and I didn't do it. And then as I was studying through this, I, I realized, you know, God gives us chances. So often when, when you mess up, when you blow it, and you know it, I didn't mean that to rhyme, um, realize God's going to give you another chance. He's going to test you again. So be encouraged by that. But when it comes, remember and be faithful and, and do what you know you were supposed to do, what you wish you would have done. Don't beat yourself up and think you blew it because guess what? God is going to bring it back around. God will give you another chance. Well, verse 12, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. This is very risky for these 40 guys. I mean, Paul is most certainly going to be escorted by Roman soldiers and guards, and they're going to sneak in, they're going to rush in and, and kill him. And so they're taking a huge risk putting their own lives on the line to do something like this. And I see that. I think this is serious hatred. This is deep hatred for Paul that these guys have. Basically, the, the word here is they, they anathematized themselves. They invoked a curse from God upon themselves that if they don't kill Paul, God will curse them. And then they said they won't eat or drink until this thing is done. I mean, that is serious. They, that, that is a deep level of hate to drive someone to make an oath like that and to, to devise a plan like that. And so, Paul had some people that really hated him. But you know what? The reality is, I'm going to kind of turn this spiritually, we have an enemy too. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this. And we are hated deeply hated by a spiritual enemy because Satan, the fallen demons that we often refer to as, as the enemy, they hate God. And they hate us because we're created in the image of God. And so here, as Paul had an enemy that could not stop the plan of God, neither can our spiritual enemy. You know, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? And so I take comfort in that fact. I know oftentimes that I am under warfare. And I, I, you know, for me, some people, the devil is behind everything. It's like, oh, my shoe's untied. The devil. You know? And especially in the South, man, that old devil, that old devil made me do that, and I did this, and that old devil. And it's like, come on, man, it wasn't that old devil, all right? But I kind of err on the other side. I oftentimes will be getting the brakes beat off of me by the enemy, and I'm not even thinking that it's the enemy, you know. And so uh, when it comes right down to it, however, I recognize that 
the enemy can't do anything, ultimately. The Lord is greater, and the Lord's will will be done, regardless of the depth of hate that the enemy has for God or us. And God uses opposition. God uses opposition to advance His cause. And we, we forget that sometimes, Christians. Uh, oftentimes when things are falling apart, when things are going bad, that was how God got the Christians out of Jerusalem in the first place. They were commanded to go. They were commanded to go out and make disciples. And what did they do? The exact opposite. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. So God brought about persecution, and guess what? Then they went, and then the church began to spread. So God will use opposition oftentimes to move us along and to, to do His work. All right, well, verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So, oddly enough, Paul's nephew enters into this story and he catches wind of the plot of these 40 men to kill Paul. This is the only clear reference in Scripture we have of any of Paul's family members, and it's not clear why he's in Jerusalem. One commentator said he, he must be a Christian, otherwise he would have probably uh, disassociated himself from Paul. Uh, basically, his, Paul's family would have turned their back on him for his Christian testimony, and so it's likely that this young man, this nephew of his, is a believer. And we don't know, but at any rate, Paul tells him, hey, go and tell the commander what you've learned. And so, verse 19, So the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, telling, uh, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Okay, so the commander took this warning seriously. He believed what this young man had to say, and he didn't waste any time. And so he set Paul up with, with these centurions and hundreds of soldiers and 70 horsemen and set him out by night. And so their plan was thwarted. Now Paul was heavily guarded, and he was taken out of that place that very night. Now, I thought about this. I wonder whatever happened to those guys that made that oath. I wonder if they uh, starved to death or thirsted to death because they swore a curse upon themselves that they wouldn't eat or drink if they didn't kill Paul. You know, this is just a classic example of a rash oath. And the Scriptures warn us about that. It says, don't do that. You know, our yes should be yes and our no should be no, but we don't need to swear an oath. And we see some people in the Bible that really did some, some bad oaths. And King Saul was one in particular. And uh, their army 
began to have the upper hand. And so in the heat of the moment, he said, you know, don't let anybody eat or drink for the rest of the day until Saul has been avenged. And he called down a curse on anybody who would, who would do that. Well, guess who was the first person to, to eat, not knowing about the, the curse? His son. And then Jephthah and Judges did the same thing. And same exact thing. He swore before God that if he won the battle, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his door when he returned home. And guess what that was? His daughter. And so I won't get into all of that. God obviously doesn't honor that kind of, that kind of uh, you know, human sacrifice and stuff like that. Uh, but nonetheless, that was a stupid oath. And we can do the same thing. In fact, I'm sure that a lot of us in here have done the same thing. God, I'll never do that again. I promise. Or God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do that. And it's not a good thing to do. The Bible says don't do it. We've seen some really dumb ones in the Bible. And um, these guys right here, this has to be one of the worst ones in the whole Bible. And I doubt that they kept the oath. I doubt it. You know. And so there's no point in, in that. So verse 25 he wrote a letter in the following manner. So this is the, the letter that the commander here, Claudius, uh, um, is sending to uh, Felix. So he wrote the letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman... And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So now Paul is being sent to Caesarea where he will be in custody for a couple of years. And he sends this letter to uh, Felix, the governor of Caesarea. And so who is Felix? You'll notice in your notes there, it's kind of an interesting guy. He was the governor of Judea from AD 52 to 59. Felix was a former slave whose brother, a favorite of Emperor Claudius, had obtained for him the position of governor. He was not regarded by the influential Romans of his day and accomplished very little during his term as governor. He defeated the Egyptian and his followers. I don't know if you guys remember that. That's who they thought Paul was when that up, uprising happened on the Temple Mount. Initially, they thought Paul was this Egyptian who had tried to uh, have an uprising years earlier and who was taken down by Governor Felix. That's who he's uh, referring to here. But his brutality angered the Jews and led to his ouster as governor by Emperor Nero two years after Paul's hearing. So that's Felix. Pretty interesting. So Lysias fills Felix in on what had happened in Jerusalem through this letter. And so verse 31, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. 
So they brought him by night. They brought Paul in. This was urgent, and it was handled uh, with a bit of stealth. And they brought him to Antipatris. So this is about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Here again in your notes, it says that Antipatris was 35 of the 62 miles by road from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It was difficult but not impossible distance for the soldiers to march in the cool of the night. Only 70 horsemen continued to Caesarea, and it goes on to talk about some of the archaeological discoveries that they have since found from this place. Pretty fascinating. Well, the first question that Felix asks is, well, you know, he wants to know where he's from. And it seems like Felix is hoping this is not in his jurisdiction. He's just thinking maybe he can get out from underneath this altogether and he doesn't have to deal with it. When he finds out he's from Cilicia, yeah, it is his jurisdiction, so he has to deal with it. And so they're going to uh, they're going to have another hearing with his accusers, and in the meantime, he's being held there at Herod's Praetorium. And so Guzik says, this began a two-year period of confinement for Paul in Caesarea. After that, he spent at least two years in Rome. Taken together with travel time, the next five years of Paul's life were lived in Roman custody. This was a striking contrast to his previous years of wide and spontaneous travel. And so this is it. Paul was told that when he went to Jerusalem, this was going to happen, that he was going to be bound, and so he is. And he's now in a Caesarean imprisonment, which lasts for a couple of years. He'll be taken to Rome. He'll be there on house arrest for a couple of years. And that's where the book of Acts actually leaves off. But God's going to do some incredible things while Paul is in prison. Some of the letters that we have here in our Bibles come from this imprisonment, this time where Paul goes to Rome and uh, he writes some of those letters, um, his prison epistles. And so even still, God is using Paul. And God had said from the beginning that I was, he would show him the things that he must suffer for his sake, but God was going to use Paul as a chosen vessel. And God was doing that in the good and in the bad. When the opposition was coming from without, and when Paul was seemingly messing up himself, God was still working a work, a good work. And that was not going to be stopped. And I'm encouraged by that. Because I don't know about you, but I want more than anything to be used by the Lord. I want to serve Him. I want to honor God, and I want to do His will in my life. And sometimes I think I'm doing alright, and sometimes not so good. Because, man, you know, just like anyone else, my heart prone to wander, and I have good days and bad days, and I know we can all relate with that, and I take heart in the fact that God is using me, and God is using you, and despite the outer opposition or the inner opposition, God's will will be done because He is in control, and that's our God, amen? That's the God that we love, that's the God that we serve, that's the God that has saved us through His Son. Even when man tried to stop God He could not. What man meant for evil, God meant for good, and He sent His Son, His only Son, His beloved Son, to die for us, to die the death that we sinful men and women deserved. And He rose again victorious from the grave, victorious over death. And He is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father from where He will return and judge the living and the dead. And that is the hope that we have, that we are now saved. We are set free. We are sons and daughters of God because of what Christ Jesus has done. And man tried to stop that, but they couldn't. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Amen? And that's the promise that we have.
So let's close with a word of prayer. And Joe, if you want to come up, man, and and just uh, close us out with a song. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you're in control. Praise you for that, God. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us. Thank you, Lord, that you keep us. Thank you, Lord, that you have a calling and the giftings and the calling of God are irrevocable. You will have your way in our life. Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you afresh today. We submit ourselves to you. We bow the knee to you as Lord and Master and King. And we thank you, Lord, that you are in control and you will have your way. And we say thank you, Lord, and we love you, Lord. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen.